0: So this morning we return to <coughs> equanimity. This time great equanimity, which you've never touched on before. And I'd like to kind of build up to it a little bit. First of all, just the word itself in Tibetan Tang nyom. Tang means to send. Just like sending a letter. Sending. And nyom means even. So it's something we're sending out, but in an even way, whether it's an attitude, a priority, a way of viewing, but it's something, an, em- an emission, an emission that we are sending out, out to the world, right? And so, in terms of immeasurable, immeasurable equanimity, the liturgy that we find in the Indo-Tibetan tradition for this immeasurable equanimity is uh, May all sentient beings abide in equanimity, free of attachment to the near and aversion to the far. Right? It's, It's a very literal translation, I think a very most useful one. And so in this context, the near are, again, primarily people, and the near are the ones who seem to be on my side, and that is my friends people who like me, treat me well, I find agreeable, I find even attractive, I find virtuous. In other words, I like them. And then the far are those you know that we feel more distant from for all of the opposite reasons. So I remember years ago when I was in the monastery in Switzerland, uh, as a monk, of course, I was just speaking with casually with Geshe I can't remember the topic. But I just mentioned uh, that I really liked somebody. Some, some guy, some, some person. And he said, that's not, a, that's not the appropriate way to speak. You're a monk. You don't speak like that. <laughs> he raised the bar. I mean, you know, don't, I like this one, I don't like this one. What's this? The first meditation he ever taught me. He was the first one to really teach me one-on-one meditation. The first thing he ever taught me, way back, Tanyong. Equanimity. That if you're really deep in Dharma, it's tough. But you're really you're transcending that. I like this one, which means, oh, you don't like this one as much. Well, yeah. Well, then where's your equanimity? You know. So just to gloss that a little bit. What about what about the abbot of a monastery, who's and, and you know a number of people like that. They're raising funds for the monastery. They're taking care of their monks and so forth. They're not taking equally care of monks and other monasteries, and so forth and so on. What about His Holiness Dalai Lama, who spends more time thinking about the people of Tibet than he does of Uruguay? Does that mean that the Uruguay—I—I I blew that one. I don't even know what to call the people of Uruguay are somehow less close to his heart? That no, I don't. I don't think so. I think I have a deep faith in his equanimity. It's just that the people of Tibet and that's those in Tibet as well as those in Diaspora, look to him like no other people do. That is, there's no, there's no other Dalai Lama, there's no substitute, there's no number two. So for millions of Tibetan people, they look to him, and therefore he has a responsibility, like a father has for his children, or like a, um, for an abbot has for his monks, a greater responsibility for his monastery than the monastery a hundred miles away. The Dalai Lama greater responsibility for the Tibetan people than he does for Argentinians or Uruguayans or what have you. Uh, Parents have greater responsibility for their children, even if they're both arya Bodhisattva parents. They still have greater responsibility for their children than other people's children. But in their hearts, if you really have equanimity, you've evened it all out. And, of course, not with cold cold and aloof indifference, but with an even-heartedness, affection, caring, sense of connectedness, and so forth. But you simply know your responsibilities lie more here, Than there, because of the way other people attend to you, not because you simply like them better, but they—you know—kids look upon their parents in a way they don't look upon any other adults, as they should. So, without attachment to those who are near, without aversion to those who are far, and when this and this—and so it's once again presented as an aspiration—may we all be, may we all dwell in equanimity, free of attachment to the close and aversion to the far. Now, this takes place, of course, within the Shravagayana. So let's unpack that a little bit. These are deep waters and very, very germane to practice. Shravagayana. What have you realized? By way of the four applications of mindfulness, for example, which is their central Vipassana matrix of practices, is you've realized the absence of any autonomous, self-existent self who's somehow running, operating, managing, owning, and so forth, the five skandhas, or you may even have realized the emptiness of self, as in there is no self here that is existing by its own intrinsic nature, independent of conceptual designation. In other words, really realized personal identitylessness, even to the depth of emptiness itself, no inherently existent self at all. So according to the the Nyingma tradition and the Dzogchen tradition, that's what the Shravakayana people in the Shravakayana realize. They realize personal identitylessness, And this pretty is pretty clear in the Pali Canon as well, so it looks like it's very much in sync. But now in the Pali Canon, the Theravada interpretation, and what the Nyumabas say, and other schools in Tibetan Buddhism, but not all, about the Shravakayanas is, although they realize personal identitylessness, you know, the emptiness itself, the lack of an autonomous self, person, personal self, when it comes to the Skandhas, you know, body, feelings, Mental processes, states of consciousness—they're inherently existent. Shall I slap my knee again? You know. What does that sound like? Something inherently existent or some, a conceptual designation? You know. And so, the view here is that they've realized the emptiness of self, but not the emptiness of the skandhas, and therefore not the emptiness of the of the of the. Of the of the universe, of of the world around, the environment around. And therefore, again, Shravakayana is really embedded in metaphysical realism. Which I emphasize again and again, it's not a foolish worldview by any means. And it does dominate scientific thinking to a large extent, but not 100%. But now, if we consider, let's let's follow the logic, follow the implications. That is, all right, I know that there is no inherently existent self over here. Let's imagine, as a a realized Shravakayana practitioner, I realize that, that you know, there's no self in here who's really in charge, owning, operating, and so forth, these skandhas. But my skandhas do have borders. My body has borders. My feelings arise independence upon my body. My perceptions, mental processes, and all of these, arise independent upon this body. So they are local. But then Joe's skandhas are way over yonder. And mine are inherently existent over here, and his are inherently existent over there. Not this, not only his body, but his feelings arising, his mental processes, states of consciousness, all arising independence upon his body and his way over yonder, right? And it's inherently existent way over yonder. And mine is inherently existent way over here. Not I, but, you know, the skandhas, that. So in this context, you're cultivating this equanimity and you're cultivating all four immeasurables really to purify your mind so that you can get out of samsara as quickly as possible. Yourself. And wish everybody luck on the way out. You know. But actually you're cultivating the four immeasurables for your own sake. In a very benevolent way. You're not manipulating, extorting, doing anything sleazy or dishonest with regards to other people. But the bottom line is you are cultivating love and kindness and so forth in order to liberate yourself from samsara. That's the way it is. And so clearly there's a priority based upon one's own liberation as opposed to the liberation of other people. Right. And one can see why. Because I just don't experience Joe's suffering. His joys, sorrows, happiness, and so forth. It's his business. You know, I'm over here. He's over yonder. So I want to engage without attachment, without aversion, because that, that afflicts my mind. But, you know, be an island unto yourself. Now, if we look at the immediate catalyst, what directly causes? I'm going back to Buddha now. Just checked just to make sure. What's the immediate catalyst for equanimity? You might recall for loving kindness, it's attending to another person and seeing the lovable quality, not the attractive quality, the lovable quality, and then a sense of affection, warmth, caring, not simply a, not a, not attraction or a desire, but these heartfelt qualities. They arise. Well, what about equanimity? And I just chuck and I just kind of like—I think I gained a little bit more insight than I had before. But it's, it's commonplace, and that is the immediate catalyst for arousing equanimity: is taking responsibility for one's own actions, recognizing one's own output into the world in terms of karma. And here's a fun. So now this is clearly within Buddhist worldview. You don't have to accept it, but this is the Buddhist worldview, and that is every time we engage in an act of virtue or vice. Every time, body, speech, and, or mind, any three, is a virtuous deed, body, speech, and mind, non-virtuous deed. Every single time we do that, we're sending out something. Like throwing pebbles in a pool. Every single time. Every virtuous speech, every virtuous action, every virtuous intention, thought, and so forth. Every time we do that, and non-virtuous, and then the ethically neutral but don't really cast anything. right? But the virtuous and non-virtuous we're just we're creating our future with every one of those seeds are sown they're sown in our mind streams and they the seeds once the seeds have been sown unless something is done to neutralize them they will eventually germinate one way or another and all those that are virtuous will uh, will, will manifest will ripen as something we regard as felicity and every single one of the non-virtues unless it's negated antidoted burnt will manifest as something we regard as adversity every single time Which means, now just turn that on its head. Every time we experience a slight, a little bit of disrespect, abuse, insult, physical harm, anything from any sentient being, that's the maturation of our own karma. It's not just them acting as independent agents. When it comes to me, and I'm engaging with anybody, and and I feel something really negative coming from that, par- that person. Abuse, slander, contempt, disrespect, physical attack, taking my stuff, robbing me, cheating me, slandering me, and so forth and so on. We all regard that as adversity, right? Every single time it happens, in the Buddhist worldview, the teachings of the Buddha, what you're seeing is not the acts of an independent agent who's out there to get you or is having a bad day. Every single time what you're experiencing is the ripening of your own karma. And so Shantideva addresses this. And he said, well, that makes me responsible in a way because my karma catalyzed that person's mental afflictions. If this really was an act where this person got really angry at me and then showed rudeness and disrespect and contempt and so forth and then you know launched into me verbally, just as one example, there are trillions, then, yeah, that person did act out of mental afflictions and I was the target, But it was my karma, my karma that triggered that person's mental afflictions. Because if I didn't have the karma, I would not be receiving that. So I'm not not responsible for that person's mental afflictions. And that person does have intentions, and that person is responsible for them. But my karma triggered it. So therefore... For negative, but as well as positive, when other people show generosity and kindness and respect and affection and so forth and so on, that too is coming back as a reflection of your own karma. I mean, it's so, we've heard it so many thousands of times. What goes around comes around. What you send out comes right back in again, you know, from lifetime to lifetime. So seeing that, then we don't lock onto other people this, oh, I like you and I don't like you. But Shantideva is saying, you know, recognize, you know. Your own karma is influencing other people's paper. Not manipulating, not controlling, but nevertheless. Nevertheless. It's almost its triggering. It's triggering their mental afflictions. Now they, remember the spark and the flame? When your mental afflictions are triggered, if you're aware of them, then you have possibly a choice of not acting on them. Right? So the mere fact that something triggers, if I turn to Emerson and say, you look like a big fat giraffe, and she goes, ooh, and then, "Oh." Like a little bit of, hmm, that wasn't nice. And then, but he's having a bad day. <laughs> That's what I say when I get really pissed off. You know, you look like a big fat Tourette. Uh You know, so the mental eviction may come up briefly. But then she notices it. And I think I will not say, well, you look like a big fat hippopotamus. You know, she decides the impulse was there, but uh, spark and no flame. You know? So one can trigger another person's mental affliction, But whether they act on it or not, you can't make that happen. Can't, you're not that powerful. Even the Buddha's not that powerful. Otherwise, he would just dominate all of us and have us do virtuous things all the time. Can't No can do. But nevertheless, triggering other people's mental afflictions. May be done with benevolence, may be done with malevolence, but there it is. So viewing that, viewing this in the Shravakaya, and I want to move on because we have the Mahayana and Dzogchen coming and great equanimity, which is the topic for today, you can see, then, the context. And that, again, the crucial point here is this reification of one's own skandhas, not only of oneself. Let's imagine that's gone, but still reifying your skandhas. And your skandhas are local. My skandhas are over here. Amy's are over there. Right? So we're really separate. That's it. I mean, we are really, frankly, absolutely separate in that view, this reified view of grasping onto existence, right? So then one can see, well, if she's really over there and her five skandhas are independent of mine, interact on occasion, we can just stop interacting, then good luck, Amy, you know. Good luck, but I have to take care of myself here. We move into Mahayana. Move into Mahayana. And we need to move in with both hands, both the hand of wisdom as well as the hand of skillful means. And the wisdom here, of course, in Mahayana, let's just go straight to Madhyamaka, perfection of wisdom, is, as it says in the Heart Sutra, Oh, something like that, very close. I memorized it a long time ago. I don't have all the words. But it's not only what he states, states there, right in the early part of Alok as I recall, it is, speaking to Shariputra, saying it's not only the self that is empty. The five skandhas too. Pumong Apotela something like that, that not only the self, but the five skandhas too are empty of inherent nature. Right. But if that's the case, if my five skandhas, if they're just as empty as I am, and all of these are arising totally in this seamless matrix, this weave of interdependence, then the notion that Amy's way over there and I'm way over here, really, well, that just falls apart. That's no longer true. As there's no left without right, no up without down, no yes without no. There's no self without other, no other without self. The do, words don't mean anything. My side, your side. Well, if there's no my side, there is no your side. There, are, take away one, the other two are gone. It's like that earlier triad, a triad: the former, the information, and the inform, informata. Right. So now everything is different. The worldview is different the way of viewing, that is, you're kind of compelled with just that sheer realization of emptiness. You really don't have any choice now. You have to view all sentient beings as being your kin, as being of the same family. You can't demarcate Amy's over there or people of Chinese background as opposed to Scottish background or somehow, in any meaningful sense, different. We're exactly of the same family. It's called the buddha Gotra, the family of the Buddhas, the Buddha-nature, or the family of sentient beings all of us having been our, uh, in each other's parents, and so on. So the fundamental view- way of viewing reality is now, frankly, it's very different. Very different. And so from this context, seeing how I am ar- ar- arising, this conventional person here, this sentient being, arising from moment to moment, relationally as a grandfather, a husband, a Dharma teacher, a friend, and so forth and so on, But all of this in mutual interdependence. So there's a little boy that regards me as grandpa, therefore I can regard myself as grandpa and his grandson and so forth and so on. But it's all this mutual interdependence. That being the case, now this may we all dwell in equanimity, free of attachment to the near and aversion to the far, the near is me. What's nearer than me? The near is my skandhas. That's really near. Daniel's way over yonder. Even if he's sitting right next to me, he's still further away than my kneecap. And so the boundary there. Well, with that insight into emptiness, you see, we just have to follow the logic, just follow the implications. If this is the case, that if there's no other without self and no self without other, mutually interdependent, then the notion that one would be more important, that I should authentically prioritize, my well-being, my liberation, more than anybody else in the universe. it makes no sense. It's not legitimate. It's, it's, not, it's not reasonable, to put it in really ordinary language. It's not reasonable. You don't exist that way, so why pretend? You don't exist as an isolated, separate individual, or even set of skandhas. Even the five, the five skandhas don't exist over here, as opposed to other people's five skandhas existing over there, so just you know follow the logic. Follow, follow the breadcrumbs. And you say, therefore, I well, but then it's the only realistic thing to do is abide in this equanimity where I equally cherish myself and others, which means the notion of my pulling out quick and leaving everybody behind it makes no sense. It's not like being really nice. It just doesn't make any sense. So there's nyamba the equality of self and others. Devi gives a brilliant section to that in his 8th chapter, which is on meditation, but it's meditation on bodhicitta. So it really has now deepened it, but it deepens it because of the view. You see, it's totally entangled. This foundation of bodhicitta, the equalization of self and other, it's totally bound up into this perfection of wisdom. It's of a piece. It's a, it's a, it's a, what, a package deal. The a package deal. all comes together. Right? And here's where you can see that your cultivation of that type of sense of equality is going to deepen your insight into emptiness. And the and insight into and emptiness is going to deepen that sense, really from the heart, of equality between self and other, between self and other. And there is the foundation for bodhicitta. So we see the foundation for bodhicitta is on the one hand, this mahayana, Equanimity, equalization of self and others. And then self and others means each one. So Amir and me. Brian and me. Beatrice and me. You just look in any direction, the earthworms, that earthworm and me. That bird and me. Every single time it comes out even, 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 even. I mean, so that bird right now has a lower rebirth, but you know, I may be following you soon. Or in your last life you could have been a human being. Who knows? So yeah, that temporary manifestation is not as fortuitous a manifestation or embodiment as being a human being. But I've had all of those in the past. This bird will have all of them in the future. So let's just not take a snapshot and draw large judgments like I'm better than that one. I'm better than that serial killer. Yeah, true, in this snapshot I don't kill people. In this snapshot. But might I have been a serial killer in the past life? Why not? It was a long time ago. I hope the karma's burned up, but sure, why not? What makes me vulnerable to have ever been a serial killer in the past lives? You know, there's nothing. And so we just see, well, you know, the Christians have a phrase for it. Therefore, there but for the grace of God go I. It's pretty good to me. We but it wouldn't quite phrase it that, that way, but, you know, there it is. It's kind of the same message. So each one, each one, every time to attend to any sentient being, you have the sense of total equality. Like when His Holiness was asked once, who do you regard as your peer? You know, there's a Dalai Lama, His Holiness Dalai Lama, world international figure, Nobel Prize, Templeton Prize, Congressional Medal of Honor, loved and adored by so many millions of people all over the world, religious, non-religious. Okay, you're in a pretty high class there. You say something, it appears on the front page of New York Times, right together with George Clooney and, you know? (laughs) And other celebrities. He got married, by the way. Oh. Women of the world grieve. <laughs> Dalai Lama, yeah, 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 yeah. George Clooney. So women, you can, take a, you can take a morning, shall we take a moment of silence, all the women? He's out of reach for the time being. So in any case, he was asked. So there he is, but he's clearly, there are not many people with that kind of international status. That's a true statement, right? So... Somebody asking, who do you regard as your peer? And they might be thinking, okay, Pope, Archbishop Canterbury, other Nobel laureates, um, Desmond Tutu, for example, Nelson Mandela. One one can think, okay, well, that would be a pretty... Yeah, they would be kind of on that level. And his response, as many of you will remember, is everybody. Everybody. And it's wonderful because he actually meant it. Everybody. One-on-one, on one. everybody's your peer. Time's passing quickly, so let's move right on. We looked at Shravakayana. Good. If people really cultivated that, that would be the end of war. Right? You wouldn't, be ad- you wouldn't be identifying with and cherishing people on your side of the border versus that side of the border. Your ethnic group, that ethnic group. Your religious group, that religious group. You wouldn't be doing that. You wouldn't be doing that. It would be illegitimate. Well, that would solve, I think, that we just created world peace by developing equanimity on that Shravagayana level. Nothing trifling about that, right? Nothing superficial. We move on to this Bodhicitta level, this Mahayana level, realization of emptiness of all phenomena, including Skandhas, and this equalization of self and other. Wow. That's impressive. And now let's just go straight to Dzogchen. As you proceed along that path that we're at least conceptually getting familiar with. You know, the Shamatha, the Vipassana, then cutting through to Rikpa. Okay, now we're in definitely Dzogchen territory, right? Let's imagine you've gained some genuine insight, maybe even if you but some genuine insight in any case, into Rikpa. You really you've picked up the fragrance, you have the taste. You know you know it. You have some genuine insight. You have some real, not just believing and understanding, having some experience, but actually insight. Imagine that. That you have, actually have some glimpses of knowing what it's like to view reality from the perspective of Rigpa. Viewing it with a view of the great perfection. Now what is close and what is far? And what is close is you. And you are nothing other than Rigpa. Rikpa right? seeing your own face. When you identify your own Rikpa, it's seeing your own face. Right? So that's what's more intimate, what's closer than that? Rikpa. Pristine awareness, primordially pure, primordially immutably blissful. That's near. And then you look around and you have a sense of other people's mandalas. You have a sense of samsara. Because you're still on the path, you're still seeing, you know, you're not finished yet. And you're seeing impure appearances. The fact that you're a vidyadada doesn't mean you're finished yet. There's still you know, multiple stages along the path. But imagine you come out of meditation and you are still seeing impure appearances of your body, mental processes. You're still on the path. Right? And then viewing other people's behavior, having a sense, maybe even a clairvoyant sense of their mental afflictions and so forth. And so what is near is nirvana, and what is far is samsara. Remember nirvana, the great self. Remember that from the Mahabharata Nirvana Sutra? Nirvana is the great self. Well, you know who you are now, the great self. Nirvana is close. It's in the palm of your hand, and samsara is kind of over there. And it will be very easy, I think, to have some attachment, some preference. Or the nirvana that is you and the samsara that's over there and thinking, gosh, I definitely like one more than another. The faint replica of that is slipping into the substrate consciousness and finding, if, you know, snap your fingers, you're in. You go in effortlessly, right? Once you've achieved shamatha, you don't have to huff and puff. You're in. And you're in, you just, you just drop in like that into non-conceptuality, luminosity, bliss, whenever you like, and it doesn't get stale. It doesn't wear off. It doesn't get tiresome. It doesn't get boring. Steady state, you know. Never fails to deliver. But after a while, you need a pee. I think that the the urinary bladder is the major incentive for not staying in shamatha. (laughs) And then you come out and say, wow, this sucks. I mean, everything sucks. If all you've—if not realized emptiness, rip, and so forth—you've just gone as far as shamatha, You've tapped into that just pure gold, unmediated, unfiltered, uncontaminated bliss of your primal consciousness, without all the contortions and configurations and so forth. You get—you just get—it's like mainstreaming heroin. I mean, without any—you don't have to go by way of sex or food or anything like that. You just. Right into your artery, you know what everybody's scurrying all over the world for: bliss, a high intensity, excitation, thrills, and then safety, security, and so forth. What everybody's scurrying all over the world for, looking for. Who's going to give it to me? Who's going to give it to me? Where where shall I go? What job shall I go? What can I acquire? What can I get rid of? Who do I need to be afraid of? You know, scurrying, running around like ants on an anthill, looking, 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 and you're sitting there, man. They're all on the move, and what they should do is just stop. Be still and recognize what you're looking for. You're chasing shadows, and everything you're looking for is inside. Everything you've ever looked for is inside, and I've already found it. And you people are so bloody deluded. It's pathetic. And you're boring, too, <coughs> and you go right in again. You can see how this could lead to a loop of difference to everybody else. I mean, it looks like you're in a nut house. Everybody around you is just completely crazy. You know that as soon as they start moving, they're moving in the wrong direction because they're moving. You know every aspiration they have is delusional. It's not you, it's your opinion. You actually know it. And you try to teach them shamatha, and they say, that's boring. The asamsara is such a thrill. <laughs> so we go back to Dzogchen. May we all dwell. Here's the, here's the aspiration. May we dwell in, equin, in great equanimity now. This is going to be my interpretation in the Dzogchen retreat. I'm going to take that right. In a Dzogchen retreat is my interpretation. May all sentient beings dwell in great equanimity, free of attachment to the near and aversion to the far. And that which is near is nirvana. It's on the tip of your tongue. It's at your fingertip. And far is samsara. To be free of that, to abide in this equanimity, which is nyam, equality and purity, equal purity, equal purity, of samsara and nirvana, of adversity and felicity, of all the upside and downside of the eight mundane concerns, but most deeply, the equality of samsara and nirvana, that you have even releasing the preference for the near nirvana, which you've tasted, and the far samsara, which you understand so well. And seeing one as an effulgence of the other, the samsara as an effulgence, a display, a creative expression of rikma, seeing that knowing that, there is the view. You see, it's not just the view of emptiness, it's not just the perfection of wisdom. It's the Dzogchen view. That's more. That's something beyond. But if you have that view, that you see the all displays of samsara and nirvana as equally displays, equally pure displays of rikpa, equally pure, if you see it that way, then there's no attachment to removing yourself, no attachment to being in solitude, no attachment to removing, going into retreat, no aversion to going out, no aversion to samsara. Again, one of my earliest, so memorable conversations with Geshinga and Taige. These were my two surrogate fathers, Geshinga and Taige and Gesherapta in the early 70s. I think I mentioned before, I'm going to say it again though. I was kind of, you know, received a lot of the Lamrim teachings and so on. I can't remember exactly, maybe the first, second year of my training with him quite intensively. And learning and actually taking pretty seriously these hell realms. They sounded like a place I really didn't want to go. And I just commented that to him, that I'd really like to do everything I can not to go to one of those hell realms. And he said, don't talk like that. (laughs) My teachers did not treat me with kid gloves. Don't talk like that. That's not suitable. You should be happy to go to hell realms. Happy to go to hell. if you can be of service to sentient beings in hell realms. You should be happy to go there, not fearing to go there, not averse to going there, happy to shape up. You see what, what a what a soft guy I am, you know, giving hugs and being nice and all of that. Not all the time, but you know, at least sometimes. My teachers, they're tough. No more like this, and not even, I don't like hell. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> they're all preparing me for Dzogchen. From the day one, they're all preparing for me for Dzogchen. Because that's it. Olasso. So the rest of it you'll know. So when we're doing the meditation itself, hardly any commentary, maybe none, but I'll just give the, the phrases. So let's go directly to the practice. (laughs)
1: Some Bema Yamse in Choki Keki 웅월경 육기 눕샘 샘 밸마 개사 돔모 낭샘샘 우루 베마 시리옹 옹 워기 Jingi lapji shek guru pe ma siri Home, home, home. That's a good to be, home. You
0: may switch postures now if you wish. Settle your body, speech, and mind in a natural state, in a state of evenness, of equilibrium, let's venture into the main practice, the cultivation of great equanimity. And we do so by posing the question, why couldn't all sentient beings dwell in equanimity, dwell in great equanimity, free of attachment to that which is near and aversion to that which is far? Pose the question and then really ask it, what's to prevent this from occurring? And what would need to happen for it to occur? To the second phase, may they dwell, may they indeed dwell in such equanimity, and to help maintain the continuity of this aspiration, you may, if you wish, can join it once again with the breath, with the flowing of light, with every outbreath arousing this. Loving and compassionate aspiration, they, each one may dwell in such equanimity, such truly great equanimity. may let your attention roam from one individual to another, one group of individuals to another, those who are virtuous, those who are non-virtuous, pleasant and unpleasant. And wish that each one may dwell in such great equanimity. we move from the aspiration to the resolve, I shall facilitate this, I shall help to bring about these necessary causes and conditions, the conducive circumstances, so that every sentient being may dwell in such great equanimity. And now as you evenly send out Proclaim this resolve, this pledge. And as you evenly send out these rays of light in all directions, in all directions, those who are near and those who are far, in the short term and in the long term, then breath by breath, boldly move into this realm of possibility and imagine that here and now Ascensioned beings do indeed find this great dwelling, this great equanimity, and abide therein. And imagine it to be so. And then we move from aspiration to resolve to supplication, calling upon the Lama, the myriad Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, the Yidams, the personal deities. May the Lama and the Deity bless me that I may be able to do so. With each in-breath you may imagine blessings converging in upon all sides, to your body, to your heart. With every outbreath, inexhaustible, limitless rays of light flowing in all directions, bringing, bringing every sentient being to such great equanimity. Release all aspirations, release all supplications, release all appearances and objects to the mind, and with utter release, let your awareness rest in its own place. so so the interviews will be 10 minutes late this morning in the afternoon of course they're always on time enjoy your day